Hi, I'm Don Cameron. And I'm Kat Lovericks. We are your co-hosts for a new intellectual property law podcast series brought to you by Breskin and Parr LLP. You can find our episodes at breskinandparr.com slash podcasts. And there you can access all the episodes and additional information on each topic. So today's topic is artificial intelligence. So what is artificial intelligence? I looked it up on the internet, so it must be true. Uh, Kat, here's what I found. AI is the simulation of human intelligence processes by machines, especially computer systems. These processes include learning, the acquisition of information and rules for using the information, reasoning, using rules to reach approximate or definite conclusions, and self-correction. And I'll add to that, and it never gets tired. (laughs) So AI is already here in some systems, and it's coming in just about all other industries. Everyone's business is going to be affected by it, so you'd better appreciate all the legal aspects of it. Today, you're going to hear from a couple of Breskin and Parr's people who know a lot about the IP and related privacy aspects of AI. Amanda Branch is is a lawyer in our Toronto office. Her practice focuses on regulatory, advertising, and marketing law, including privacy, as well as digital media issues. She has extensive experience in privacy, regulatory, and cybersecurity law. Bupinder Randawa is a partner in our Toronto office. He's the leader of the firm's electrical and computer technology practice group, and he's co-leader of the artificial intelligence practice group. He's got a degree in computer science. He worked for a while in industry as a software engineer, so he knows of what he speaks. And he doesn't just advise people, he stirred up a few tech companies himself. He drafts and applies for patents, uh, and I looked at his resume. His, his area of expertise looks like a shopping list of tech areas, artificial intelligence, quantum computing, neural networks, telecom, wireless control systems, electronic circuits, digital signal processing, robotics, power systems, power electronics, computer software, business methods, and other technologies. So Amanda and Bupender, thank you for being with us today. Thanks, I'm Catherine. As a starting point, what are the different aspects of AI that you encounter in your practice? Bupender, can you start us off? Sure, Don. So if you define AI as the simulation of human intelligence as you looked up on uh, in Google, then it's still in its very, very early stages. You could say it's in its infancy, really. What, most of what we see are machine learning systems. Uh, we're looking at companies that are developing algorithms and companies that have big data sets and who are trying to work together uh, to, to produce commercially useful and valuable products. We're also working with a few clients, and these are a lot more specialized people, uh, much more on the math side and the engineering side, who are working on neural engineering frameworks and advanced neural processing circuits. A lot of that stuff is, uh, it's not too far away, it's not, it's not 10 years away from commercialization, it's probably in the one or two or three year time frame, uh, but it's still in early stages. A lot of these things that we're looking at are applied in, in robotics and manufacturing and in more traditional areas. So a lot of what consumers will see and uh, a lot of what lawyers are going to see are improvements in areas that we've been dealing with forever and they're just going to be improved substantially and on a much more autonomous and automated basis. So you're not going to replace podcast hosts anytime soon? <laughs> not anytime soon, but, but we're learning. And, you uh-oh. Know. uh-oh, and listening. Amanda, how about you? What, what AI aspects do you encounter in your practice? One of the main areas of concerns uh, I see in my practice is drafting a privacy policy that clearly and transparently explains privacy practices to users. Consumers are becoming more aware of the value of their personal information, and I think we see people getting more sensitive to sharing or protecting it. This is particularly important in a time when data breaches are becoming more prevalent. 
So how are AI innovations and IP protection for AI innovations, how's that different than other technologies? So to understand how the IP aspect is different, you have to look a little bit at how technology development is changing. In software development in general, a lot of the stuff is software. There's a lot of hardware and, and they have a lot of overlaps. There's always been a lot of sharing and use of public domain uh, libraries and tools and techniques, but more than ever in AI, uh, companies are making use of public domain algorithms. A lot of the big um, tech companies, Google and others, have released various suites for machine learning. Um, some of them are quite advanced. None of them are particularly specialized, so even when companies are able to make use of these public domain tools, they do have to put more effort into uh, specializing, customizing. But this use, an extremely heavy use of public domain algorithms is, is much greater than before. The other aspect is that um, there's a lot of sharing. So there are often groups of companies that have the algorithms and the talent and the technique and others who have the data. And they're being forced to work together. And that's introducing a lot of, um, well, frankly, there's a lot of change in the power in these relationships and, and in how they're negotiated uh, because there's generally not as clear a, um, a more powerful and a less powerful party. So they have to deal with each other a little bit differently than they used to. And Amanda, how about um, privacy from a privacy perspective? What's special about uh, artificial intelligence? There definitely artificial intelligence specific privacy concerns and some of those main ones are the retention of data and the use of data for a new purpose. The limiting principle under the Personal Information Protection and Electronic Documents Act, um, more commonly known as PIPEDA, or PIPEDA, however you decide to pronounce it, um, so the limiting principle requires you collect only what is necessary to fulfill the reasonably stated purpose and that you're to retain data only so long as it's necessary to fulfill that purpose. Indefinite retention is generally not appropriate, but this can be directly conflicting with AI, which requires vast amounts of data from different sources over a long period of time in order to make the most of its machine learning. But retaining data for longer than necessary could also result in data quality issues. So quite simply, data that's out of date could lead to errors or malfunctions of varying severity. So for example, if a company is using AI to target advertisers or deliver services, they could deliver ads or content that doesn't match the consumer's actual profile or current preferences. Um, on the other hand, for example, in a medical context, there could be more severe consequences. Like if the algorithm is relying on outdated medical information, it could lead to a misdiagnosis or the introduction of error into a larger sample set. Similarly, uh, data may have been initially collected for a different purpose, which poses additional challenges. For example, how can an organization collect clear and meaningful consent for a purpose it hasn't yet figured out and or could not have been able to imagine at the time of the initial collection? It's difficult to know in advance what correlations or algorithms the AI may come up with, and it can be difficult to predict what the algorithm will learn. So the organization may not have had consent to use data for this new purpose, and often going back and seeking fresh consent can be a challenge. But on the other hand, AI may often require all of the available data. So by limiting certain data sets, the AI may be weakened or may have bias introduced because it's only being trained on certain data sets instead of all of the available data. These concerns are linked to the issue of transparency. Several of Pivotus fair information principles require that individuals are made aware of the purpose of collection in clear language. This can be difficult with AI when decisions are made by complex algorithms that may be unanticipated 
or difficult, if not impossible, for most regular people to actually understand. So, Boo Pitter, let's talk about specific IP risk. You work uh, in the area of getting patents for people and in helping with technology transactions. What particular challenges do AI patents face? So, traditionally, it's pretty common, and this goes back a long way, uh, to electrical technology, mechanical technology, for different uh, companies to be working on very similar innovations at the same time. And that's because consumer demand, business demand arises, and everyone's aware of that. And technology uh, achieves a point at which you can make certain innovations in products. With AI, that's happening at an absolutely dizzying pace. So many people are working on so many very similar, very related uh, problems, especially on the algorithmic side, that uh, it's going. To, there are going to be IP assets that are going to be extremely valuable. It's a bit of a lottery as to who gets them. And the patent system rewards people that file early and file a thorough, comprehensive, carefully drafted patent application. One of the challenges that a lot of our clients face, and especially people that are on tight budgets, they have to be very selective about what to file, and they tend to file patent applications uh, that can be a bit superficial, may have enough information in them to telegraph to their competitors what they're doing and how they're doing it, but may not meet the requirements of disclosure um, and thoroughness that are required to actually get a strong patent. So the, the caution here is that you have to file well thought out, thorough patent applications. You have to consider whether there's something really inventive in them. And so we, we are often talking to people who, they're doing something that's very interesting. It may be very commercially valuable, but it's not inventive from a patent sense. And it may make more sense for them to use trade secrets. If they're gonna go down the patent road, they have to write a thorough application, really consider what the technical aspects are, look way down the road, three, four, five years, which is a, a very long time in their world, uh, and make sure that they're anticipating how things will be used to the extent that they can. You don't want to be guessing, but you do want to be thinking through the practical applications of your technology and trying to protect all of those different aspects. And ultimately, um, it's a matter of assigning a reasonable budget and assigning a reasonable uh, reasonable strategy and plan to the whole thing. A few good applications are much better than a lot of weak applications. Quality, to be honest, the quality, poorly, quality better than quantity? Quality is much more important than quantity and frankly, a poorly written patent application is often worse than not applying at all. Okay, now what about, um, uh, what issues kind of come about with collaborations between companies? Because I can imagine success has a thousand fathers and fail <laughs> failure is an orphan. Isn't that the expression? That's right, something like that. So you do see, and we, we're already seeing people who, uh, because of the collaborations, they all want to be named as inventors. The companies have different rights. So th this comes up in the context of agreements, but within the patents, um, it's very important when you start a JV or any kind of joint development or anything where you're uh, cooperating, even if it's at an, in an arm's length relationship, to define early on who owns what, what rights they will have, and how they will get to commercialize them. And when it comes to the patent, in general, for Canadian companies, it's better to have a single owner of the patent and to use a licensing regime to, to share uh, the revenue that might come from it or the rights that arise from it. So you'd effectively set up a company to do that, it would hold the asset, and then the the partners, if you will, would be the shareholders in the company? Yeah, so that's a common approach. Um, a less costly approach, that's not necessarily very um, expensive, but it's often very common for one of the companies to own and then the other company to be licensed and be put in the position of a co-owner, um, just from a contractual point of view. Okay. 
Amanda, how about you? What sort of challenges is AI creating for your clients? AI creates a number of internal operational challenges for organizations. Uh, I'm sure many of our listeners have heard the term privacy by design, but simply put, privacy by design is a framework that considers privacy rights of the individual at every step of the design and implementation of a system or a process, as opposed to only considering privacy implications after deployment. This concept has been around for many years, but importantly, it's now an explicit legal obligation under the European General Data Protection Regulation. In Canada, it's not an explicit legal obligation, but it is typically regarded as the gold standard of privacy protection. And in 2018, the House of Commons Standing Committee on Access to Information, Privacy and Ethics tabled a report called Towards Privacy by Design, Review of the Personal Information Protection and Electronic Documents Act, which advocated for privacy by design to become a central principle of PIPIDF. Operationally speaking, if you're working towards privacy by design, uh, there are certain things you should be aware of in an AI context. So for example, at the very outset, your engineers and product developers should be aware of privacy requirements. So ensuring your employees understand the privacy framework of your organization can go a long way to make sure that everybody's thinking about privacy um, from the very first stage going forward. Another consideration is internal limits on who has access to what data. So for example, not every employee will need access to personal information and likely only certain employees will need access to your data repository. Similarly, carefully consider what data you need to collect from the consumer in the first place. Just because you can collect unlimited amounts of personal information doesn't necessarily mean you should. Data minimization can also help to mitigate your risk of a cybersecurity incident as unauthorized access, either internally or externally, is often at the core of a breach. Finally, instead of personal information, consider using aggregate or anonymized data when possible in decision making, but ensure your organization is using a strong de-identification technique so the information can't be traced or linked back to an individual. That's an interesting concept. It's to, it's to segregate the private information from the, I'll just call it sort of the data, if you will. Um, and that way you can at least um, isolate the individual's private information from the information that is otherwise, I'll call it generic or consumer driven or medical driven or whatever. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. And even in the AI context, there's a lot of um, opportunities to use aggregated or, or high-level information to look for trends. So it's not necessarily the case that you would need to delve down into the level of personal information for every decision-making process. Okay, so part of what you deal with, Amanda, are, are AI transactions. So what sort of things are the things to watch out for in dealing with AI transactions? One of the major challenges that clients face is how to communicate privacy practices to users. Um, there's been many studies done which demonstrate that people simply don't read privacy policies. One often cited example is a study done in 2012 which found it would take 25 days a year to read the privacy policy of every website you visit. And I can't even imagine how much that number must have increased now in 2019 given how prevalent apps and online services are in our everyday life. Uh, I'm sure we can all admit we are guilty of being accept without actually having read the privacy policy. Um, and this has certainly fueled the open question of whether privacy policies are truly collecting meaningful consent, which is a requirement under PIPEDA. 
The Office of the Privacy Commissioner of Canada released new guidance on the collection of uh, meaningful consent, and they've been applying this since January 1st, 2019. So these guidelines are really intended to provide practical and actionable advice for organizations to obtain meaningful consent under PIVOTA. So organizations should consider emphasizing key elements. The guidelines recognize that information buried in a privacy policy really doesn't serve a practical purpose to individuals who have limited time or limited energy or interest in reading a full privacy policy. So the OPC really advocates that you ensure your privacy policy is readily available in a complete form, but also consider giving summaries or a layered overview so that people who are in a hurry or may not be interested in reading the whole privacy policy can still get a quick summary of the most meaningful elements. So like a like a headline version? So what, what sort of things might those headlines be? Exactly. So there's four things that really should be covered in this sort of headline version, if you will. Um, so one, what personal information is being collected? With which parties are the, is the personal information going to be shared? For what purposes are the personal information being collected, used, or disclosed? And if there's any particular risk of harm or other consequences, those should be called out as well. Um, the expectation is the organization will do what it can to mitigate any risk of harm, uh, but if there's anything particularly sensitive, that should be called out in the headline summary. Okay, so that's the, that's or, the first point, emphasizing the key elements. What's the second point? The second thing is that individuals should be allowed to control the level of detail they get and when. Mm -hmm. So sometimes an individual may just want a quick snapshot, but there are certainly people who would like to read the entire policy, so all of those need to be taken into account when you are providing individuals with, with detail throughout the sign-up process. And similarly, you should provide individuals with a clear option to say yes or no. So recall that under PIVOTA, individuals cannot be required to consent to the collection of personal information beyond that which is necessary to provide the product or services. The organization shall also be innovative and creative. So don't just post a huge policy online and sort of forget about it. Organizations are encouraged to consider a variety of communication strategies. For example, just-in-time notices or little pop-up windows that as you go through the sign-up process, it draws your attention to specific collections of information can be useful. Um, the OPC has also suggested you may want to use graphs or colors or icons or other sort of creative ways to draw attention to specific elements of your collection practices. And when you're doing this, consider the consumer's perspective. So consent is only valid when the individual can understand what they're consenting to. So organizations need to think about who their target audience is and phrase their privacy policies in a way that is easily understood by their audience. And then finally, you need to be accountable. The OPC expects that if you are called upon to demonstrate compliance, that you'll be able to do so. Blue Pinder, in terms of AI transactions and patents, what sort of challenges are your clients facing? So there's a tendency, I think, to apply new technology to every problem that a company has and try to replace our old solutions with new ones. Machine learning and AI are not going to be the solution to every problem. And some of the joint ventures and joint developments and even internal development programs, obviously some of them are not going to work out. When working with others to, to collaborate or, or to build up a company, a new company, uh, with a partner, it's important that our clients in, insert appropriate escape clauses and have a real understanding, a, a realistic understanding of what might be achieved and if it's not achieved, how they can both walk away from that without having unduly harsh repercussions on each side. 
Um, one important thing is to include a good proof of con uh, concept stage in these agreements. And rather than assuming something will work out, have a cost-effective, time-effective plan to getting to a conclusion about whether you should proceed um, fairly early in the process before too much has been committed by each side. Have clear performance requirements set out, clear acceptance requirements set out, and only continue the relationship if those are met. Uh, if you get too deep in, I think that there tend to be a lot of recriminations and a lot of money has been spent and a lot of finger pointing can happen. And having a realistic set of expectations on both sides is, is key to success here. Um, there are a few key points of failure that have to be dealt with in agreements. So companies that are bringing their algorithms to the table, they may have worked in test conditions, they may have worked in various conditions with practical clients and customers and data sets and so on, but there's no certainty that they will work with new data sets, especially as you're extrapolating further and further away from the development environment or even the test and commercial environments in which they've already been used. So you have to be very careful in terms of the promises that you're going to make in agreements um, when, you're, when you're supplying the analytic side of an AI tool. Similarly with data, more than ever, the adage that garbage in, garbage out applies. And Amanda mentioned this about the quality of data and bias a few minutes ago. But more than ever, we're seeing machines that are being trained with flawed, biased, incomplete data sets, which then just reflect those biases. And there are you know, an increasing number of stories about data sets that, um, for selecting resumes and for making other decisions that the company unexpectedly finds that their data just reveals their past practices are not so great, you know, that, that, that they've been biased in hiring and they've had to shut down some of those programs. And even major companies have had to give up on recruiting programs uh, based on their existing uh, hiring data. So the problem with AI mimicking human intelligence is it mimics human intelligence. <laughs> exactly. It's, right. it's really no better than the data set that you put into it. So as I said at the beginning, it's a long way from being truly intelligent. It, it really doesn't know its own goals. You're telling it to do what you have already done. And if you've done something poorly, well, it'll continue to do it poorly. Another big risk with this is these things are being trained on existing data sets, and then they have an autonomous learning aspect to them. So they tend to reinforce the mistakes that they make. Um, there, there's not a lot of, there's some randomness to it, and you could have some learning from that randomness, but that's actually more on the leading edge of AI and not, I haven't seen it being implemented too much in these systems. On the practical but, side. On yeah. the practical side, yeah. Like in terms of real learning, there's not much going on. It's really just repeating what you've done, finding uh, relationships that you couldn't have found on your own because they're too complex, but then just uh, reinforcing them. So even when, and when you have good data and good systems, and even when you have good agreements in place, the real world is a challenge. Um, you know, I think that there are already some very good automated tools for residential house closings, but extrapolating that to office towers doesn't work. No two office tower, tower deals are the same, and you have to be careful how far you go away from the base data set and the base algorithmic tool. Mm -hmm. uh, similarly, autonomous vehicles are great, and, and I've been in a Tesla that drives itself, <laughs> and it's great, but sensors get dirty, roads are not well marked, all sorts of unusual lighting, reflections, other vehicles on the road, crazy pedestrians, all sorts of things are going to happen. And you have to be careful in the, the risks that you take when you're supplying equipment. So if you're a, a sensor supplier or the machine learning system supplier, uh, how much risk are you willing to take when that system is being implemented uh, with algorithms and data and techniques and humans from all over the place with different skill sets and different, um, and, and different histories and different levels of completeness? So to, to sort of summarize all that, 
The, the key is in the reps and warranty section, in the background section, um, in sort of in the risk management aspect of your agreements, be very careful and think through what you were willing to take on and what's fair between the parties. Thing, you know, technology needs to be developed, commercial applications and products need to be built, but the key is to make sure that there's a fair, um, uh, fair assignment of the risks and liabilities and uh, the parties will generally be able to find that in the middle of the road, um, but you need to do it up front rather than, rather than after the problem has arisen. So Bupinder, if you had some takeaways for our listeners um, who have valuable AI data or who are building AI technology, what would those, what would those key takeaways be? So a few points. AI is going to revolutionize technology. It's going to revolutionize how we live and how we interact with each other and with technology and with machines. Um, a lot of value is going to be created in that process. And companies should be very careful to make sure that as they're creating valuable rights that they are protecting what they can carefully, that they're using appropriate types of IP rights, whether they're patents or trade secrets. Um, they should keep in mind their brand strategies and their licensing strategies. When it comes to agreements, we're in a bit of a wild west. There's no stock standard agreement you can pull off the shelf. Um, it's not going to be a cure-all for everything. And so as you go through this wild west of making deals and seeing what is possible and what is not, keep in mind that some things will work out well, other things will not and that you have to make sure that you're apportioning risks very carefully. Uh, and in terms of AI strategy and IP strategy and agreements, look down the road. Most of the value is going to exist three, four, five years or more, maybe much more down the road. So both strategies should look at least that far forward. And most agreements should look even further. That has to be one, probably one of the toughest parts of your job is looking that far forward in a field that's growing as quickly as this is. Yeah, absolutely. And clients, you know, it's, it's nice to have those blue sky conversations, but the further you look, the less certain it is, and you don't want to behave in a, in a speculative manner. It has to be thought through. But often you can find a good balance between what is likely to happen and what is not very likely to happen and draft both patents and agreements taking that into account. Fair enough. Amanda, can I ask you the same of you? What do you see as the as sort of key takeaways for, for your clients? I think one of the most important things is, like I mentioned, incorporating privacy by design. So considering privacy at every step of your design and development process so that the privacy risk can come up and be handled and mitigated as you go along. It's much easier to design with privacy in mind than to have to go back and modify your processes or your systems once you realize there may be a privacy risk. Similarly, making use of a privacy impact assessment is also a good way to have a standardized way to document and go through these conversations uh, every time you come up with a new system or a process. Privacy impact assessments are not strictly required under PIVOTA. And then finally, like I mentioned, having a transparent, easily understandable communication about your privacy practices is very important, particularly for your consumer-facing policies. So recall, users really aren't going to read a long privacy policy, so while it should be available somewhere, also organizations should be creative in making sure that they're drawing its users' attention to any sort of particularly risky or sensitive collection of personal information. Well, uh, thanks to both of you, my knowledge in this area, my non-artificial intelligence in this area has been doubling every five minutes. So I hope our listeners feel likewise. Uh, Amanda and Bupinder, thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks, Don. Thanks, Don.
Our guests today have been Bupinder Arundawa of our Toronto office and Amanda Branch. Information provided during this episode should not be taken as legal advice. Bupinder, Amanda, and our other colleagues here at Breskin and Parr would, though, of course, be pleased to advise you. You can subscribe to our podcast by visiting breskinparr.com slash podcast. There you can access all the episodes, additional information on each topic, and stay on top of what's happening with IP in Canada. So subscribe and follow us wherever you listen to your podcast. That way you'll never miss an episode. It's free and it notifies you when there's a new one. Thank you for listening to today's episode presented by Breskin and Parr, LLP. Until next time.